0: Well, this morning, um, I just want to introduce you to a subject that we're going to be spending the next few months in as we look at the minor prophets of the nation of Israel. Uh, Let me just begin by reading Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in earlier times, Romans 15.4, it's also in the sidebar of your study guide, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction "...so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope." Now, the interesting thing about that passage is, Paul was writing it about the Old Testament. That through the encouragement of the things that were written, the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Whenever we delve into the Word of God, it gives us hope, it gives us encouragement and particularly in these Old Testament passages. Now, if you have your Bibles with me, I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Hosea. Now, if you're not familiar with where that's located, to give you a little bit of help, um, if you find approximately the middle of your Bible, you'll be probably in the Psalms. Mine has a few extra helps in it, so I am not exactly land in the Psalms, but it's close If you find the middle of the Old Testament and then you go to the right, you'll pass the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and uh, and, uh, so forth. And then you'll come to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Those are the big prophets. And then when you get to the end of Daniel, you will find the book of Hosea. Now, Hosea... Is the first of the 12 last books of the Bible called, of the Old Testament called, the Minor Prophets. And you can see the list there in the introduction Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Last 12 books of the Old Testament are called the Minor Prophets. Now, I want to take a moment and underscore the word minor in the prophets. And I want to get something buried in your mind because it's really, really important. I remember years ago, my professor of Old Testament kind of triple underscoring this for us because whenever we use the word minor, we mean like um, perhaps inferior or of lower quality. You know, you go from the minor leagues to the major leagues. Or if you're a minor... Yeah, there's things you can't do yet until you become an adult. And so when we use the word minor, we have a tendency to be talking about uh, something that's less than. And in this application in the Scriptures, why they call them the minor prophets, I don't know exactly um, but why they use the word minor. But the truth is, it only means that they're shorter than the major prophets. It doesn't mean they're less important. It doesn't mean they're juniors. It doesn't mean their message is less significant. It just means that for the most part, the message of these minor prophets is shorter than the message of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And together with the major prophets, there are 17 writing prophets. In the Old Testament, there are more prophets than that, but some of them, such as Elijah and Elisha and others, were only oral. They only spoke. And what we know of them was recorded in other books. But these are the written prophets, and the last 12 are the minor prophets. Now, we're going to be looking at the minor prophets because. They have significance. I'm going to get to that a little bit more in a minute. But they have significance. They spoke at a time in the history of Israel when Israel needed to hear from God. And I believe that the message that they spoke is a message that we need to hear today. Let me tell you a little bit about the history of Israel, give you a little refresher this morning. And... Uh, put into context where these guys did their ministry. Why don't you take out that um, chart that I gave you, Kings and Prophets of the Divided Kingdom. And let me give you just a little bit of an overview. Remember how God said through Moses way back in the wilderness wanderings when they were just about to go into the land of Canaan. God said through Moses, the day will come. When you will want to have a king over you like the other king, like the other nations. I'm your king. I'm your Lord. I'm your guide. I'm Jehovah. But the day will come when you will not want me. You'll want a physical king, one you can see. And, and you'll want him to be over you like all the other nations. You're going to be one, you're going to want to be just like they are. And God said, when you get that king, he's going to do what kings do. He's going to rule you and control you and tax you and take your profits. (laughs) And you're not going to like that, but you're going to want that. And that's going to happen at some future point when you turn away from me in the land that I'm giving you. Well, fast forward 400 years through the time of the judges when Israel kinda the, the, the commentary of the judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that brings chaos and confusion and and the nation of Israel was in disarray and the Philistines were giving them trouble when they were having problems on all sides and sure enough they finally said to Samuel, We want a king. Everybody else has a king, we want a king. And that grieved Samuel's heart. He said, you know, God is your king. And I said, we can't see God. We want a, a real king. We want somebody that we can look at. And Samuel was so disturbed over that. But God said to him, Samuel, this is within my providence. I said this would happen. Now it's happening. Go and anoint Saul king over Israel. Saul, Saul kind of stood out. The scripture says he stood a full head higher than all the other Israelites. He was a big guy. He was a handsome guy. He was tall, you know, and suave and debonair. And so it's like, okay, we're going to pick uh, Saul to be our king. But Saul, as you know, did not follow the Lord. And time and again, he was doing the wrong thing, doing his own thing, doing something other than what God had called him to do. Finally, God had had enough and God came to Samuel again and said, Samuel, I have a man, a man after my own heart. He's one of the sons of Jesse, and I want you to go, and I want you to anoint him king over Israel. And so David went to Jesse, and you know the story, how eventually uh, David was called in from the fields, uh, tending the sheep, and God said to Samuel, this is the one, and, and Samuel anointed David the king. Now, it's important to remember that event. Because there are certain places in the Old Testament where God makes a promise and He establishes a covenant. And God keeps His promises. For example, He said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and through you all the families of the world will be blessed. God kept that promise. God made a covenant with Moses regarding the law on Mount Sinai. He says, you're going to be a peculiar people. You're going to be separate and different. And this law, this covenant that I am making with you, is going to make you different. And one day, it will be written on your hearts, not tablets of stone. God made a covenant with Moses. God made a covenant with David. The covenant that God made with David was the righteous scepter. The scepter of the rulership of Israel will never depart from your line. One of your sons will always be sitting on the throne of Israel. And the interesting thing about that is, is guess whose lineage, humanly speaking, can be traced back to David. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, one day is going to come and establish His kingdom, reunite the Jewish nation and bring them all together again, and to bring the church with him, and he is going to establish his throne in Jerusalem, and a son of David is going to sit on the throne and reign for a thousand years as the king of kings and Lord of Lords. So it's important that we understand the covenant and the promise that God made to David, because it factors into the message of these prophets throughout this Old Testament period. Well, after David, you know, David was the warrior. He was the one that was always fighting the Philistines and all the other enemies of Israel. But finally, uh, by the time he came uh, to his death, his son Solomon uh, inherited the throne and became the king of Israel. And while David was a warrior king, Solomon was a peaceful king. In fact, under Solomon, the nation of Israel experienced its largest expansion. Solomon built a temple for the Lord. Solomon built great palaces. Solomon was, was rich and wealthy and full of ideas and wisdom and people. Um, dignitaries from all the nations of the earth traveled to see Solomon. But he was exactly like what God said. Where did he get all that money to build those palaces? Where did he get all that money to build the temple? Where did he get all that money to do those fancy things? Well, he taxed the people. He put the people to work. He basically (laughs) made them labor, and he he took their money. And even though he ruled well, and, and Israel prospered under Solomon, it's still significant that even under Solomon, Israel did not enjoy the full expanse of the territory that God had promised to Abraham. And that's an important thing to remember because God always keeps His promises and never in the history of Israel to this day have they enjoyed the full expansion of all the land that God promised to Abraham. That tells me that there's a future for Israel That still includes the inheritance of that ultimate promise. Well, after Solomon died, and that brings you to the beginning of this chart I ask you to look at, because after Solomon died, his son, Rehoboam, came to the throne. Now, Rehoboam, as you can imagine, was raised in the lap of luxury. You know what happens to lots of rich kids today in our culture, right? Everything's given to them. You know, when they go to school, they they get a a new Porsche. And uh, they have all these fancy things, and they they have everything they could ever ask for. And, And sometimes, you know, if the parents are not wise, these kids end up very, very spoiled. And one of the things we know about Solomon was, even though he wrote and said a lot of wise things, he didn't apply very much of it to his own life. In fact, for all of his wisdom, you you see his despair in Ecclesiastes. Well, Rehoboam grew up in that family in the lap of luxury, and Rehoboam inherits the throne, and here's this huge nation, and all the riches, and Rehoboam's in the palace, and, you know, and and he uh, calls in his father's counselors, because the Israelites were getting restless. They were getting frustrated with almost this oppression. And Rehoboam says, I need some counsel from you guys. What do you think we ought to do? And they said, Rehoboam, you need to go to the people and you need to tell them you're going to reduce their taxes. And you're going to give them a break. And you're going to reunite the kingdom. And you're going to to be a, a blessing to them. And you're going to be much lighter on them, much better than your dad was. And Rehoboam says, hmm, if I do that, I'm going to lose all this uh, power and prestige I've got. He called in the young fellows his age. He says, what do you guys think I ought to do? They said, man, you ought to go out there and crack the whip. You ought to take charge of this situation. There's a rebellion brewing. You need to squash it. You need to tell them that if their dad was, if your dad was like a whip to their backs, you're going to be like a scorpion. And you're going to put more work on them and you're going to make more taxes from them. So he went out and followed the advice of the young whippersnappers. And things did not go well. Many of the restless tribes up in the north, they called for Jeroboam down in Egypt. Come up here and help us. We've got to secede from the Union. We need to break this thing up. We need to get out from under this guy. And so rebellion ensued. And what happened was, Jeroboam came up and united the northern tribes and they withdrew from the southern portion of the kingdom and the kingdom became divided. And from that time forward, there were two tribes in the south, basically, Judah and Benjamin, and they were clustered around Jerusalem. And in the north, there were ten tribes. Those tribes were clustered around Samaria, and Jeroboam was their king. If you look at this map, you can kind of see how that's divided. And there's a little star down here by Jerusalem and a star by Samaria, and it shows where uh, the northern tribes were and the southern tribes were. And here's what happened. And this is important. It's important for us to understand even today. What do you think Jeroboam did, the northern guy? He's got ten tribes, and they've all been worshipping in Jerusalem in the temple. And he says, I can't have them going down there to worship. They're going to get all stirred up with the southern guys again. We're going to have to give them a new place to worship. And so he created a temple and a false god in the north. And he said, you guys worship up here. Don't go south to Jerusalem. You worship up here. In other words, Jeroboam turned the hearts of the people away from God. And in fact, the history of the northern kingdom was, after the divided kingdom and Jeroboam took the throne, the north never again turned back to God. They never had a revival. There was never a national repentance. They pursued other gods until one day, 722 B.C., the Assyrians swept down and overran the northern tribes, and the northern ten tribes of Israel were absorbed into Assyria, essentially never to be heard from again. Now, some people have tried to figure out where they went. Some of you have heard of Garner Ted Armstrong and British Israelism and, and uh, that whole movement. And uh, some people tried to trace the northern tribes up into Europe and, and Great Britain. And then they came to the United States, and guess what? We're the modern-day Jews here in America. You know, we're the ten tribes. And that was the whole thought behind that, that plan. But the truth of the matter is... We never really knew what happened to those ten tribes. It was the custom of the day for conquering nations to, to move people into other places, move other people into their places, mix them up with the idea that if we, if we intermarry you and get your cultures blended, you'll forget your heritage and it won't matter anymore. And if you recall in Jesus' day, you remember the animosity and hatred that the Jews had with the Samaritans? That goes all the way back to this time. Those Samaritans were half-breeds. They intermarried with the Gentiles, with the Assyrians. They're not real followers of Jehovah. And they always had a hatred for them because they felt like they were the wicked ones. the truth of the matter is, there was never a national turning in the north, and they did, in fact, become rebels. Well, in the north, there were certain prophets that prophesied from God to the northern kingdom to come back to God, but they never did. There was a succession of kings, but not even the same family, different kings came to the throne and the dynasties changed. But what about the south? Well it's very interesting that in the southern kingdom, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the son of David, continued to pass on the kingdom to his sons all the way to the last king in five eighty six BC, Zedekiah. All of them were sons of David. The line of Judah never passed from the family of David. All the way until the end of the southern kingdom. And guess what? When Israel is reunited again, a son of David is going to sit on the throne and reign. And his name is Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so God's promise to the southern kingdom was the line of David. And in that promise, <clears throat> there were good kings in the south. Josiah, Hezekiah, others experienced revival. They, their hearts turned to God. There was that uh, kind of seed of their great-grandfather David running through the line. And, and they turned the nation back to God. And there were times of national repentance. They listened to the prophets on occasion. And they followed their counsel, and the nation experienced revival on more than one occasion, so they lasted longer. But one day, the Babylonians swept in and conquered Jerusalem, finally, because they had turned their back on God one time too many. And they were carried off captive to Babylon, but not destroyed, unlike the northern tribes that were just lost... The southern tribes remained, maintained their identity. And eventually, under Cyrus, they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild in accordance with God's prophecies that one day they would return and they were the ones who prepared the way for the coming of Messiah. And so the prophets, these twelve prophets that we're going to be studying either prophesied to the north or they prophesied to the south or they prophesied during the exile and after the return so that we can divide them into three periods of time or three areas. The northern prophets, the southern prophets, and the exilic and post-exilic prophets. And they each had a specific message for a specific time that we're going to be uh, looking at. Now, when we consider the overall teaching of these books, they're written in Hebrew, by the way. Almost all the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, except for a little bit of Daniel. with an Aramaic. But I want to say something about the nature of prophecy, because this is part of what uh, makes this kind of an interesting study. Prophecy... We tend to emphasize is forth telling. In other words, proclaiming the message of God to the people. But it's not just forth telling, it's also foretelling. God gave to his prophets visions and insight into the future. They not only predicted the judgments that God would bring, but they also, on occasion, predicted the future blessings that God would bring. And particularly in the South, those prophets gave hope and a future and and a promise. And so their prophecies were filled with the future. And as a consequence, they tell us a lot about the things that are going to come. Now, I'm going to try to do something that I've never done before. So so you'll have to pray for me, see if I can pull this off. I'm going to try to preach one sermon per prophet. One message for a whole book. (laughs) And Todd says, good luck. (laughs) And when I do that, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to take the theme of the book and the, and the, the key focal message of the prophet and how it applies to our lives. And I'm going to try to put that together for us, and look at the key verse, the key message, and what it's really saying to us, and, and who he was saying it to at the time. But I'm probably going to make an exception when I get to Zechariah. I'll tell you why in a minute, but Zechariah, besides the fact that it's 14 chapters long, it may require a few more sermons. So we'll see we'll see how well that goes. But basically, I'm going to try to take us through the Minor Prophets. And I'm not going to go in the order that they are in your Bibles, necessarily. I'm going to go in the order in which they preached. Except for next Sunday, I'm going to start with Jonah. Some say he was the first. Uh, your chart puts him a little later on. But the reason I'm going to start with Jonah is because Jonah was not a prophet to Israel, he was not a prophet to Judah, and he was not an exilic prophet. Jonah was a prophet to a Gentile, godless nation, and the capital Nineveh. And Jonah has a very special message for us. So i tell you in advance, next Sunday we're going to start with Jonah, and then after Jonah... We're going to go to these other 11 prophets, and we're going to take them in chronological order. Now, you're probably wondering at this point in time, Okay, Martin, (laughs) why should we be studying these minor prophets in the Old Testament? What do they have to say to us? Well, one of the things we need to realize is the Old Testament is 77% of our Bible. Actually, someone has said 77.2% if you're into the details. It's 77% of our Bible, and it is just as inspired as the New Testament. In fact, it is the foundation upon which the New Testament is built. In fact, the Old Testament is quoted frequently in the New Testament, and these minor prophets factor significantly in New Testament passages. So we're going to be looking at that as we go through them as well because they're frequently referred to in the New Testament. Also, the Old Testament has special significance in many ways. For example, Paul said to Timothy, Remember the scriptures uh, that you learned, you know, at at your mother and your grandmother's feet. Remember the scriptures that were able to make you wise for salvation. He was talking about the Old Testament that Timothy could learn the truth about salvation from the Old Testament. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will pass away until everything has been fulfilled. And in the Hebrew alphabet, jots and tittles are little accent marks. Jesus was saying every single letter and part of the letter is important. It's all going to be fulfilled. But the most significant moment, I think, is when he's talking to Nicodemus that night that he has a conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asked him this question, What do you mean I have to be born again? <laughs> you can't go back in your mother's womb and be born again, can you? And do you remember what Jesus said to him first? He said, Nicodemus, before he answered the question, he said, Nicodemus, you are a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? In other words, Nicodemus, a student of the Old Testament, should have understood the importance and need for a new birth by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what an astute student can learn from the Old Testament. That you need to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus, Jesus said, should have understood that. And then graciously he went on to explain it. Someone has said that every page of the Old Testament contains a reference to Jesus Christ. I don't know if that's entirely true. True, but it's certainly predominantly true. The Old Testament is filled. If not with prophecies, it's filled with symbols. If not with symbols, it's filled with lineage and history. All of the Old Testament focuses on the coming Messiah. It points to Jesus Christ from Genesis 3.15. To answer one of your questions on the sample questions, by the way. In Genesis 3.15, God says... He will bruise your seed on the heel, but he, your seed will crush His head. It is clearly a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ that would destroy the enemy and invalidate and make of none effect His works. All through the Old Testament, it points to Jesus Christ. And we're going to see Christ very clearly in these Old Testament books. Another reason for us to study them It was Solomon who said, there's nothing new under the sun. And I can tell you this much about culture. I'm not a world traveler, but I have, over the years, had friends from many different cultures. I've had Vietnamese friends. I've had Korean friends. I've had friends from Africa, not African-American. I've had African-American friends, but I've had African (laughs) friends from Africa in America. I have had many Hispanic friends, all different cultures, different races, different languages. But here's what I can tell you about all of them. When you get down to the bottom line, we all have the same heart. We all have the same desires. We love our families. We love our children. We grieve and are heartbroken when loved ones die. We want and seek comfort. We want provision and, and, and shelter. And when we are injured, we have pain. And we are grateful for relief. We value love the world over. Sometimes we do not realize how much unites us commonly. All people are the same the world over even though they express it differently with language and culture and and uh, racial characteristics we have the same inside and we're also the same across the millenniums. just because we fly in airplanes and drive automobiles does not make us materially or essentially different from those who rode in chariots and walked dusty roads and sandals. Our hearts are the same. There's nothing new under the sun. Human beings are human beings. It's been said that prostitution is the oldest profession in the world. Human nature is the same throughout. And when God's prophets speak to people 3,000 years ago, addressing the problems of their day, they are still speaking to us. The Bible's message is timeless in that respect. We will find application in every book. Finally, it's important to study the prophets because... Many of the warnings given to Israel have an application to our country, and many of the prophecies are insightful about our times. Some people, over the years, people have asked me the question, how does the United States factor into end times events? What, which of the nations mentioned in the Bible fits the United States? Answer? Probably none of them. I'm not sure we're there. I don't know that the United States is a significant player in the end-time events. Scratch our heads today and say, how can that be possible? We're the most powerful nation in the world. Yeah, you better look at that again right now. You better see who's holding the debt. You better see who's holding the property. You better see whose militaries are rising don't bank on that. We just happen to still have the appearance of having the upper hand. The end time events center around the nation of Israel and the nations around them in Europe, Asia, and North Africa. These are the nations that factor into end time events. We're going to be able to look at some of that. and That's why I say when we get to Zechariah, I may have to park for a few Sundays. Because there's so much in Zechariah that's prophetic about things that are coming. I just finished a five-novel series by Joel Rosenberg on uh, how you know the end-time events unfold. It was a very fascinating series. We heard him speak a month or so ago um, down in the Wheaton area. He's written some non-fiction books. Uh, one of them uh, is called Epicenter, which is a non-fiction record of what's going on in the Middle East, he has another book out about how Muslims are turning to Christ in great numbers. It's like the secret or a hidden revival. It's amazing what's happening. But there are major things that are happening in the world, and those, those clues to many of them are found in these minor prophets. We'll be looking at those. One of the things that I found almost astounding Because if you, I won't spoil it for you, but if you get to the end, very bad things happen just before the rapture. (laughs) That's the way Rosenberg sets it up. But I was closing out of my email yesterday, and when I do that, the Yahoo News page pops up on my computer, and I noticed a headline that I thought was right out of Joel Rosenberg's books. It just grabbed me. Did you know that right now, this week, there are war games being played with the South Koreans and the United States Navy? That we have an aircraft carrier parked over there along with some warships and we are engaged in war game scenarios with the South Koreans? And North Korea never likes us to do that, but it's a little bit of saber-rattling that says uh, we're still here, we're a key player, you guys stay out of South Korea. Uh, we're not going to tolerate any violation of that uh, uh, recognition of that division between North and South Korea. And so uh, we're out there right now playing chicken with the North Korean Navy and Air Force And guess what North Korea threatened? Nuclear retaliation. If you mess with us, we're going to nuke you. Whoa, that's a little unsettling. And they're nutty enough to do it. I mean, there's some strange uh, ideas over there. Now, our intelligence services tell us they don't have the capability to deliver a nuclear weapon. Of course, they've told us a lot of things over the years that haven't exactly panned out. We don't really know, but it's very interesting to see that things are shaping up in some fascinating ways. Uh, I don't think the world's going to end this week, by the way. If any of you are wondering, (laughs) Nereh's glad to hear that. (laughs) But just think all the things we wouldn't have to do if the world ended this week. We'd see Jesus. But anyhow, we're going to be looking at some of those prophetic things as we go through these 12 minor prophets who aren't so minor. Well, how can we prepare ourselves for this series? Uh, one of the things I'd like to encourage you to do is to read the book I'm going to be speaking on the week in advance. Now, I've already told you I'm going to be preaching from Jonah next week. You can read Jonah through once a day or stretch it out over the week. but. Read through Jonah this week, and while you read, ask God to speak to your heart personally. I mean, there's history there, there's a message there, there's a story of what happened with Jonah and Nineveh, but how does it apply to me? Ask God to apply it to your heart, to talk to you from the pages of Jonah's prophecy. See if you can find the major theme. What's the point of this prophecy? Why did God put it in the Bible? Is there a key verse that stands out and captures that for you? And then as you come to church each week, come with a prayerful expectation that God will change your life and touch your heart as we go through it together. Pray for me. Friends, preparing to preach from the Word of God is spiritual warfare. And it's a warfare that I engage in every week. I believe to a large extent the, the significance and the impact of the messages I bring are due largely to the prayers of God's people for me in the preparation. Pray over these messages. Pray over the prophets. Pray that God will... Reveal to me what he wants to say. Pray that his word will come across very clearly. And look at the many, look for the prophetic passages that will help us understand the spirit of our age and prepare our hearts for the return of Jesus Christ. We can't go through the minor prophets and ignore the prophecy, it's there. And we'll see what God has to say to us about the future as we consider it. So, are you excited? You ready to go? I didn't mean leave. I meant get into the study. Uh, I want to encourage you this week to pray over Jonah and begin to look with anticipation at what God is going to speak to us about in the coming months. Um, Carrie, if you come in a minute, brother, and lead us in, in a closing song and then... Uh, As we do that, uh, we're going to be headed downstairs to meet with our uh, Spanish brothers and sisters, Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters, um, to pray for Maria. And I hope that uh, all of you can join us in that process. Father, thank you for your word to us. Speak to our hearts from it. Prepare our hearts to receive it. And even now, as we prepare to go and pray for our sister, Lord, bring your church together in mighty power and prevailing prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.